0: One of the insights we know from behavioral economics is that people are more attuned to loss than they are to benefit. So people will fear losing things much more at a disproportionate level than they will at gaining things.
1: Welcome to
0: a bit cryptic Podcast where we interview top crypto experts to take you down the rabbit hole into the world of cryptocurrency. Now, it's time to get a bit cryptic.
1: Hello, cryptonauts. This is Yudu Wan, co-host of the show, A Bit Cryptic. So today we have a special guest, Tori Adams. She is the VP of Consensus, we are very excited to have you on the show, Tori.
0: I'm really excited to be here and talking to you.
1: Great. Why don't you give our listeners a little bit of introduction about yourself?
0: Sure. So I lead up Consensus's public sector U.S. practice. So about a year ago, Consensus, which is we like to think the largest blockchain development studio in the world decided that it was time to get seriously into the public sector and see how we could bring blockchain technologies to the U.S. public sector. So we opened an office in D.C. and I was hired to run it. And so here we are in Washington, D.C. now with about 15, 20 engineers and venture architects and solution architects down. And we've... uh, been trying to bring knowledge of blockchain to the federal government bit of a challenge and to a lesser extent to some of the state and local government out there in terms of my own you know background on this uh, you know I was previously leading up Booz Allen Hamilton's blockchain investments and I've worked for the federal government for a long time so I'd really seen the need for this and I was very excited when consensus decided now it was time to get in
1: that's great. We'll come back to this specific uh, story for the blockchain. Sure. But I just want to kind of give the listeners some overview, some background about how I originally uh, get to know you. I recently attended the Philadelphia Coinvention mm-hmm. Conference and where you gave a very passionate presentation about opioid crisis and how uh, you think or see blockchain as a very viable solution for that. I'm just curious, I know you kind of touched on it during the presentation, but what makes you so passionate about uh, opioid crisis in the first place?
0: Sure. So... I mean, I got into being interested and concerned about the opioid crisis from rather a direct route. Uh, My daughter is an opioid addict, is a heroin addict, and has been for the last 10 years. She has been in and out of sobriety in that time, sometimes for a long time, once for as much as three years. And it has been a struggle with her, which has seen her go from a healthy, a quite wonderful young woman into somebody who has been beaten and abused and has been sexually assaulted has been homeless and has just really experienced the worst that someone can experience and as i started to get involved in in this both as a uh, parent and then also as an activist i started to see more and more of how the system we've built in this country does not serve people suffering from opiate abuse disorders and, in fact, makes it much worse. That there are many problems associated with both the provision of opioids initially for prescription and then further on into the treatment of the process where we're just not serving people. As I, you know, talked about in that speech there, some 675 1,000 Americans have died of drug overdoses since the opioid epidemic began in the late 1990s. And every one of those people is someone's mother or father or son or daughter or husband or wife or a friend. Everybody has that relationship. And that is spreading out through our communities throughout the country and starting to affect almost everybody. I speak a lot on this topic, and whenever I speak, someone will come up to me and say, it's so good you're seeing this because my college friend died recently, or because my uncle died, or because my daughter is an addict. Everybody has a story, unfortunately, and it's just been incredible how many people this touches. And and it doesn't respect class. It doesn't respect ethnicity. It doesn't respect income. It doesn't respect ability. I've seen uh, young people who are high school quarterbacks who have become addicted through uh, taking pain pills that their coach asked them to take so they could keep playing. I have seen people who became addicted from taking pain pills from a wisdom tooth and starting down on that. And increasingly, I have seen people becoming addicted who are starting off directly onto heroin and onto fentanyl and the other synthetic uh, opiates. It's really something that's a great scourge for our community. I mean, last year, 75,000 people overdosed and you know, we have 30,000 deaths. I mean, this is just an incredible number, a terrible thing. Now, me as somebody who's interested in blockchain and is, is passionately committed to this subject, I mean, I'm immediately thinking, okay, what can I do? I can do the stuff that uh, other parents do. I can go to meetings. I can write letters to my congressman. I can do all of that stuff. What's that really going to change? Is that going to change anything? So I started then to think about there's got to be something that we can do as, you know, these R4 technologists that we are, as folks who are on the bleeding edge of where we can go into the future with this tech and saying, how can we mobilize this? How can we mobilize this to get things done? And so from a personal event to an increasing understanding of the national implications of this, I was forced to turn towards the one thing that I had uh, that could probably be of some use, which is an understanding of this revolutionary technology and how crypto and some of the unique capabilities that can really act to change the way we approach some of these big social problems.
1: That, that's fascinating. I think one of the key points you just made there is kind of the personal angle you're coming, coming from, right? I mean, for us, a lot of people, opioid crisis might just be a news headline uh, or it's just a number, just a statistics. But for you, since giving your personal experience, giving your daughter's experience, it's not no longer just a number. It's a story with so many details. Some of them are not pleasant. I think for that, from that, it really fuels you to go down this, this rabbit hole try to find a solution.
0: Yeah. And I think, you know, you see more and more of this in the crypto and blockchain community of people who really want to get involved in some social issue because of a personal event too. I mean, you know, there's so much attention on the power of crypto to make you rich that there's less attention on the power of crypto to really make social changes for the better in society. We at Consensus believe fundamentally blockchain is a social engineering technology. It's a technology that because of its unique ability to create those micro-incentives in a a cheap, effective, low-cost way that we can really uh, create, for the first time, these decentralized systems that allow us to encourage people towards good, to cut out costs that middlemen impose on communities that have been dissatisfied, that have, you know, not been well-served in the past. And we see you know, things like opioid epidemic is just something I'm interested in, but I know there are people at uh, Consensus who are uh, equally involved in things like dealing with sexual slavery, dealing with issues related to gun control, even that are really in large part motivated by their individual personal experiences.
1: Absolutely. So I want to go back to the early point you made about um, Consensus Plan. In using blockchain to fight the opioid epidemic. So, what mm-hmm. obviously we know there's many different traits of the blockchain technology. In your opinion, what specific traits or natures of blockchain makes you believe that it is the right technology to fix this crisis?
0: Sure. I don't think it will fix the crisis, but I do think it can be of some help. Now, When we started to think about this, we started to think about how can we conceptualize um, the opioid epidemic so as best to take advantage of the characteristics of this technology. And the way we understood the epidemic is really as a stock flow model. So I apologize for being overly technical about uh, and cold about an important issue, but we thought let's strip it down to its bare bones. So it's a flow in the sense that there are people who are becoming addicted and then move into that addiction system. And then there is a stock of people who are already addicted. So if you're trying to address the epidemic, you can either address the flow of people moving in and saying, how can I reduce that flow? Or you can reduce the stock who are already addicted. And any solution to the problem will have to have both angles. So for example, when the Obama administration quite rightly encouraged doctors to reduce the prescribing of opioids for pain, what this did was leave a large number of people in the stock already in there or existing uh, addicts who now didn't have access to pain pills their response was to move on to opioids like heroin and other street opiates such that you changed and mutated the the challenge we're talking about. So thinking about that flow in, we said, okay, what's the key pipeline we're looking at here? What's the way that opioids are channeled into this community? And the key thing that we identified as coming in was via the pharmaceutical opioids now we've all read things about overprescription we've read things about diversion we've read things about you know doctors uh, misusing opioids and the, and the basic thing of why drug diversion occurs you know is really simple if you get a oxycontin 15 milligram generic from walgreens or walmart it's going to be about 54 cents somewhere between actually 40 and $0.55 a pill. Now, on the street, the value of that pill is anywhere up to $19, between about $16 and $19. So there's obviously an economic motive for it. We know there's a great deal of uh, diversion going on. Now, the initial thing when you hear something like this is thinking, Oh, it's a supply chain problem. And we've all heard supply chain use cases that have come out of uh, various blockchain companies. You know, there's a number of companies trying to do this now and good on them when it comes to pharmaceutical supply chains. But what we really thought The problem here isn't so much the digital record of moving from condition A to condition B, moving from manufacturer to shipper and shipper to wholesaler and then wholesaler to hospital or hospital to pharmacy or whatever is the chain. It's not so much that. It's creating some sort of incentive mechanism that ends up where people have an incentive to keep that system honest. So what we started to look at was let's look at some of the really unique capabilities of blockchain and crypto to incentivize good behavior. So again, just to recap, you know what we've got is a supply chain here that has a lot of incentives for people to misuse it. And whatever the digital record says, we know that money is leaking out of it. We know that pills are leaking out of it. There are plenty of good digital records right now but those digital records are not capturing what we're finding coming in. So what we thought of, and we proposed this to a a manufacturer who came to us with wanting some ideas, and they were having a lot of contraband, in particular fentanyl coming in from Southeast Asia where they had a lot of manufacturing. So for instance, they might be manufacturing, and I'm just pulling this out as an example, T-shirts. And within the T-shirt boxes, there might be fentanyl hit. Now, right now, the way you deal with this is by expensive inspection routines and everything else. And they said, is there any way blockchain can help us? And we thought for a while and we said, well, how about this? And we proposed this to them. We said, what if you do something where you say, as a condition to work with us, you have to make your supply chain incredibly uh, open. You know, we've got to have it super open and everything. And you've got to make it open to every participant in your supply chain too. So everybody is a cop on this. That's the condition. Now, furthermore, we'd like you to post a bond in crypto as part of this, and we'll do it via a smart contract and all of that, that will be sufficiently high as to dissuade somebody from cheating. And then what we would say if the supply chain goes from A to B to C in the chain, we would say if A, B, or C identifies any contraband within the package, then say C identifies it, they would obtain the crypto bond that has been posted by A and B. Now, they couldn't just do it straight away because you'd have all kinds of potential for cheating. But... They would be able to hold up their hands and an investigation could happen. And it would be a reward for them being of honest. So what we were trying to do with this is to create an incentivized supply chain. And we kind of believe that this might be the way to really deal with the digital analog problem that a lot of supply chains have had when you come to blockchain. Mm. So typically, I mean, when you're talking about supply chains and blockchain, great use case. Everyone loves it. But somebody comes back and says, well, all you've just done is created a digital record. And that's great. But the world is made of analog items. How are you going to manage the digital analog divide? Now people say, oh, I'm going to put IoT sensors in. I'm going to have RFID tags. I'm going to have all kinds of things uh, coming in. And that's great. You should do that. But, you know, fraudsters and smugglers have to only think of one way to get around your system. You have to think of every way they might get around the system, and almost every foolproof supply chain I've seen, somebody has been able to interrupt that chain, to insert contraband into something, whatever. So we said, instead of trying to deal with the problem from the point of view of the incentives are to cheat, let's make the incentives to play along, to be honest in the chain. Mm -hmm. So you get each party in it is turned from a potential fraudster into a policeman, into somebody who can get up there and check out and see what is going on when it comes to the different, you know, potentials for fraud that we're seeing. So where we are with this right now is we've proposed it. Mm-hmm. We've got it in a a design session. We've worked through it. And it's just really a matter of sort of going from there and seeing what we can do with it.
1: That's very interesting. So I have two questions. First is, when we talk about the, um, the incentives on the network, it uh, sounds like in order to make sure everyone is acting in a, well, uh, you have to set up incentives so that incentives to catch the bad actors outweigh the benefits playing back. So, how do we propose to design that?
0: That's absolutely something that we would need to do. And that is something that we've been working with our game theoretic people of what it would have to be. And essentially, we're looking for a price point here. It's a very interesting point. The incentive issue is really important. And for us here, behavioral economics came into being. One of the insights we know from behavioral economics is that people are more attuned to loss than they are to benefit. So people will fear losing things much more at a disproportionate level than they will at gaining things. So by asking people to, in effect, stake on their honesty and stake also the honesty of their other partners within the system. We believe this creates a powerful psychological incentive and material incentive for people to investigate their own supply chain ahead of time. So if you are the manufacturer to really think about Is the shipping company that I am going to use going not only to lose me the business of the person who is buying my products, but also is going to lose the bond investment that I have put down as security for being able to join this chain? And while there will be initial pain, I'm sure, as people try to cheat, as people put money into, sorry, put things into supplies, over time, That market will start to enforce a certain kind of honesty. Now, we're able to do this in a low-cost way, of course, because of the decentralized nature of blockchain, because of the ability of blockchain to both create these decentralized markets and, at the same time, to guarantee payment and to avoid all of those extremely costly bureaucratic mechanisms you would have to do in more centralized systems. So, we're very interested in this. We're starting to work with some folks to be able to see what kind of level of that bond would have to be. The profits are often huge in this uh, in the drug business. However, at certain points, they're not that huge. And at certain points, too, there are more folks that stand to gain from legitimate trade. We're essentially wanting to start rewarding good behavior and stop trying to punish bad behavior. Because if there's one thing we've seen, it's incentives work. And disincentives are often a hard thing to do.
1: That's very interesting. So you mentioned earlier uh, that the drug manufacturers are a very important player in this network. What about the other players in the healthcare system? You talk about providers.
0: So the other part that we were really focused on, if you recall, was going back to that idea of the flow and the stock. So that's the flow going in. For the stock, what we're starting to think of is the problem with the system right now when it comes to treatment of the addicted person is that it tends to favor very short-term fixes. So in the US now, the treatment industry is worth about $36 billion. This occurred after Obamacare um, made it uh, able for, uh, well, essentially created a parity between treatment for addiction and other diseases. And addiction is a disease. It's a disease of choice. It's a disease of the brain's ability to make good decisions. It eventually said, if you're gonna tre- if you're gonna have an insurance policy, you've gotta have drug treatment. What that did was create a huge market for treatment. Now, since that started immediately, there was a whole lot of fraud because human beings. And human beings will do things fairly morally for their advantage. Now, the key thing that we started to notice there was that it was very difficult to estimate the amount of fraud because you had a problem of outright fraud. And there's huge fraud within the treatment business. So, for instance, there's the phenomena of patient brokering. A patient broker is someone who sells on addicts repeatedly to different treatment facilities. So, my daughter, who is an addict, tells me regularly she gets uh, text messages from patient brokers that say, I will pay you $100 for any addict you can send to me with insurance. They take that addict, they sell them on to a fraudulent treatment facility. That treatment facility essentially warehouses them for 30 days. Maybe there's a 12 step group there, maybe there's something else. At the end of 30 days, they let them go. The treatment facility bills the insurance company, they get the money, they kick some back to the patient broker. The patient broker then takes the addict who hasn't been treated, takes that person along to another treatment facility. And they carry on going like this till they have milked the insurance company for all they can. And this is one of many, many scams. We've seen some uh, treatment facilities in... Pennsylvania that were actually distributing drugs, and they were part of a drug network. We've seen huge busts in California and Florida over fraudulent treatment systems. So you've got that problem that's outright fraud and criminal malfeasance. But you've got another problem that's starting to emerge at this point, where you've got treatment facilities that are delivering ineffective treatment. And the degree to which they realize they are is very difficult to say. You know, there are things like equine therapy where you're around horses. And I am quite sure that it is very pleasant to be around horses, but there is no strong scientific literature saying this works. There is, however, strong scientific literature saying certain things work. We know cognitive therapy is successful. We know that uh, opioid antagonists are successful treatments. We know what works. We know it's hard, but we know what works. And we know a lot of things either don't work or it's really complicated and questionable how they work. And the thing is, when you come to a treatment facility, say as a family member who's trying to find some place where your, your spouse or your child or your friend or your brother or whatever can go into a treatment, you're not looking with that scientific eye. You know, you're looking with, oh, this place looks nice. You know, It looks safe. It's got green fields. Um, you're thinking, if I was in this position, I would like to be there. And you can't have that information to compare the success rates, partly because when someone leaves, there is no record that's kept of them. It's not in anybody's interest to keep that. So we started to think of, one, how can we start to create that data record of what is happening, what works and what doesn't work? And secondly, we started to think about Can we move away from this catch and release? I get someone who manages to go into a treatment uh, saying, I want to try and deal with my habit. That's very challenging. They stay in a treatment facility for 30 days. They leave. They're back to the same place. They're back to the same housing situation. They're back to the same jobs, to the same friends, to the same social milieu. And surprise, surprise, they relapse. So what can we do? So we started to think about the same thing of those crypto incentives and those bond incentives again. Could we say we re proposed and we're trying to propose this now to a number of uh, uh, treatment facilities and to insurance companies, that when the insurance company gives money to the treatment facility for the admission of a patient, that they only get a portion of the full fee. And the remainder of that full fee will be given to them in stages via smart contracts, via provable things, by records that can't be tampered with, over time as they start to meet certain benchmarks of sobriety or at least of attending to things. So it's not just the last time we talk to you is when we leave. It's now we have an incentive to do follow-up care, find out where you're going. Speak to you again and arrange psychotherapy or other things within a week or a 12-step program or ensure you're taking your medications and do that within two weeks and do that within three weeks and do that within four weeks. And then do it within two months to create an incentive system where you, again, have these crypto bonds paying out over time and being able to start to create an incentive system for positive behavior. And of course, if this works here, maybe it'll work with other things like diabetes, like other behavioral change diseases that we know we need to do. So we're exploring and experimenting with it. And we think it's something like this that's got to happen. And that's sort of the other part of where our head is right now.
1: I think to your point earlier about the health insurance, the the payers kind of tying the, the healthcare outcome to the payment. I think if you look across the U.S. healthcare industry, this is the new trend shifting away to value care, value-based care, quality of... Exactly,
0: and to pay for performance rather than pay for test, you know?
1: Uh, then what you guys are proposing, uh, however, what's interesting, sounds like since everything will be on a public ledger... Uh, there's more transparency. Like everybody can be an auditor. That's so. right.
0: And I, you know, I don't know uh, to you know to what degree you've dealt with the healthcare system, but it can be very difficult to find the price of something. You mm-hmm. know, I had an injury a while ago that I needed an MRI for, and trying to get this uh, MRI outside of the core uh, hospital system that I was in was extremely difficult when there was. A group in the town I, that I live in, where there was a, a practice that specialized in doing MRIs, and they were incredibly cheap, and mm-hmm. they would give me a price. But the thing was the the hospital system I was in would not give me a price, and so I could not really be able to go to my insurance company and to make an argument about you know, hey guys, if you went out to you know MRIs or us. Uh, they can do it much cheaper than retaining within you this system here where a whole bunch of cross-subsidization is going on, and it oh, yeah. becomes extremely difficult to understand it, and this you find very much in the drug treatment industry. If you ever are unlucky enough to have to deal with this, if you talk to somebody and you say, well, I haven't got insurance, and I'll be doing private pay, you know, their question is not well, you know, it costs XYZ dollars, their question is often more phrased in a polite way of, well, how much money have you got? Because they will go up and down and you can negotiate, you can get what are called scholarships, and you're left with a very complex picture about what you're actually buying, how much did it cost, and was it effective?
1: Yeah, well, I think one of the, so we just touched on kind of the incentives, the, the network effect, of the blockchain, uh, one of the other key attributes of blockchain is removing the middleman from the process. I think if you talk about drug industry, uh, one of the key middlemen that's you know really make things very murky is the um, PBMs or the pharmacy benefits managers. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's funny you should say that. We were just talking about these guys before we came on. I mean, these guys are the quintessential middlemen, and we really think that. These people are ripe for disintermediation. Why they're still there, I, I really don't know. You know, they should have disappeared a while ago. But you see these guys and and they're just sort of taking a little bit off the top, but they're taking enough off the top to really distort the system. And we think uh, you could definitely use to move to a blockchain-based uh, auction system. I mean, most of the time you're talking about generic drugs that are coming through from these guys and you have a number of manufacturers who are competing for different prices, we could definitely do a reverse auction, you know, where you're uh, competing towards the bottom. Everything would be transparent. People would see pricing and it would be a very interesting thing to do. Now, the question would be, How'd you get into that system? We've been thinking about maybe going in with some uh, online pharmacies, the, the legitimate kind. I should add, because the thing is with the PBMs is that so many pharmacy chains have now started to buy up PBMs and you know offer those services to manufacturers and insurance companies. So it's it's a strange market that's emerging.
1: I think that this is also the area where uh, blockchain has a lot of potential to succeed, uh, to remove the middleman and also make the process more transparent
0: and more... Transparent. Absolutely. Couldn't agree with you more.
1: Great. So I want to kind of play the devil's advocate a little bit. Uh, just think about some of the potential downsides of using blockchain. And when we talk about healthcare data, obviously, privacy that pops to mind. Uh, given the rules of HIPAA, science issues, where do you think, how do we resolve the challenge while also ensuring? Well, I think
0: one thing that was, so I would break this down into really three sets of problems, that there is an economic problem, that there is a technological problem, and there is a sort of cultural organizational problem that needs to be solved. I think that the key thing when we think about this from a technology point of view is there are certain things that we need to solve uh, both within our own implementation of blockchain to be able to meet HIPAA and to meet other requirements. I do not think those particular things are too challenging. I think there are definitely things that we can do, but I think being able to integrate then into the existing electric health record system and into other systems around doctors' offices, I think will be critical in being able to do that. To me, the the key point of failure in a lot of blockchain systems now is the interface and is the intersection with legacy systems. And I think we're going to have to work with the existing powers in the medical profession and the pharmaceutical industry to be able to get those things over. But I do believe those technological problems Are probably the least of it. Uh, The second thing is sort of an economic regulatory issue that's going on here. I mean, from a regulatory point of view, we've got to jump through a lot of hurdles. We've got to be able to sell regulators on this technology and make sure they understand that. And that's something I spend a lot of time doing. And it's something I struggle with, frankly, because you want to be able to ensure that people understand the unique capabilities of this technology and why it is so. Are much better than others. But on the other hand, I don't want to tell them too much. You know, I don't know, I don't need to know how the electrical system works to turn on the lights. I just need to understand the value of the light and that the switch makes it work. And so, Communicating that this is both a reliable technology that meets regulatory requirements and that it is something that can be safely used is a very tough thing to do, and that's going to take time, it's going to take working together with those guys, it's going to take building alliances. And closely related to that regulatory issue that's coming in is an economic issue. You know, a lot of people after Obamacare and the first push towards EHS spent a lot of money. Some of them got really badly burned. People are not in the mood to spend a lot of money when you're talking to the healthcare system. So you're going to have to come up with a really strong business case and something that can both convince them from a technological, a regulatory, and an economic point of view. This is one reason the fax machine still stays around within the health industry. It's cheap, it's reliable, they know it works. It actually doesn't work, <laughs> but they've got faith in it.
1: That we're still using fax machine for uh, translating healthcare data in
0: 2020. Which is ridiculous. This must be big fax must be behind this. There must be a huge fax lobby because that's the only faxes they must be selling nowadays. Yeah. And I think finally, you know, there's this cultural issue of getting people to understand the blockchain. How do you have to understand it to get them to understand that this is the safest way to store your record? That paradoxically, letting go increases control. That's going to be a challenge.
1: Absolutely. Obviously, uh, you're based in D.C. You're well aware of the regulatory uh, environments. It looks to me, I almost feel like it's a very slow process in yeah. terms of educating the regulators, helping them to understand to your points about this technology uh, without going too much deep into the weeds. So it's definitely a, a slow. uh, Yeah. Yeah,
0: baby steps, but we're getting there. You're already seeing blockchain pilots starting in FDA, starting in CDC. I think there's one starting in CMS. So we're seeing it within the healthcare system, and I think the key thing has got to be government getting its hands on this technology and starting to play with it and understanding what it can and can't do. I know that a number of folks have been speaking with the Veterans uh, Health Administration and trying to look at blockchain that gained huge problems. So I think just this gradual thing of people touching it and using it. You know, as everybody says, this is 1992, the internet has just arrived, we're in the same place, blockchain has just arrived, people aren't sure of it. But, You know, the thing I always like to say is people overestimate what can be done in a year and underestimate what can be done in 10. You know, if you look at 10 years ago, if you look at 20 years ago, our economy, our society has been vitally changed by information technology. And living through that, there was no obvious break. But on the other side of it, you say this is a world transformed. And I believe the same will be true with blockchain. When we look at each individual step forward, it didn't seem like a big thing. But collectively, it's incredible. It's going to change our money. It's going to change our industries. It's going to change everything. And it's these baby steps that we all All in the community, all your listeners are participating and doing these small actions, you know. Everything from you know buying crypto to working in a in a blockchain company to thinking of some crazy ass idea that you're gonna go out and try and sell, or just to explaining to your grandma (laughs) what you do and why it's so interesting and gradually getting it. And when you see people's the light go on in people's eyes. You know, they get the bug real quick. They get it. I was up in Boston the other week talking to some people in a environmental health company about these issues, and one of the guys at the table, you could see him getting it, and he started to come up with use cases. And uh, the other day, he sent me an email, and he said, I've got the bug. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he said, now it's all I want to read about. And I said, yeah, that's what happens.
1: I think my goal for 2018 is to get my grandma talking about (laughs) trickle. That's
0: right. Yeah. My dad has just reached the point where he says, I don't understand it, but I'll accept it. As opposed to my aunt's boyfriend who swears to God that he will never use electric money. And I said, you're already doing it. There you go. You're just doing it in an incredibly insecure manner. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, you touch on a lot of things there. Uh, I think one of the things I want to get your opinion, uh, you mentioned like what's going to happen down the road. In your opinion, what's going to happen with the crypto community or the blockchain community at large uh, in the next five years? So
0: I think we're going to see a couple of different trends. I mean, the first thing is we're going to get respectable. You know, we're getting more respectable, more enterprise driven all the time. Blockchain has come out of the back rooms and is now a fully enterprise-grade technology, the kind of stuff that consensus has been doing with Kaleido and AWS and that IBM has been doing with Hyperledger and what other folks have been doing is turning this into something that the big corporations, the big organizations, the big agglomerations of power within our society are starting to see hey, we've either got to get on this or we'll be disintermediated or we've got to get on this and start to see how it can make our business better. And I think we're going to see more and more and more of that. And that's just not going to stop. This is the next internet. If you ignore it, you know, you're gone. So I definitely think from that point of view, that's one of the big things we're saying. From my own interests, I think very much that government is the next frontier. I have not really seen strong government use cases, I think we're starting to see them uh, now emerge in the area of payments, in the area of remittances, in the area of permitting and all of this. I expect to see a great deal of that going in. So I think you're going to see these sort of big organizations finally start to stand up and realize what the blockchain can do for them and what blockchain can can really improve the way they do business. I think the second thing that's going on is so many of these marvelous small businesses and startups are going to start to come to fruition and we're going to start to see some really great ideas popping up. You know, just as it was far from obvious, you know, who would be the leaders in the digital economy in 1992, in the early 90s, and what sort of things would work. I think there's an incredible experimentation going on, but that experimentation pretty soon is going to lead to one or two of those sort of big events coming out. And we think, you know, in consensus, we have a few of those. And, you know, we think some radically new stuff is going to be coming out, you know, in, the, in 2019. It's really going to change things. So, I think from a sort of, you know, big community point of view. It's we're going to see gold rush changing from uh, perhaps uh, small miners all over the place. I don't mean crypto miners, but just as a metaphor. To uh, you know, the settlers are coming in now, and the settlers. Some of them are successful farmers. Some of them are su- are going to be you know running shops around the towns and all of that. And you know, other folks are still going to be pushing on to the frontier and seeing what the new things can be. Technologically, I think what we're going to see is a convergence of a lot of the different systems out there. I don't think we'll be talking about public and private blockchains a year from now. I think that will be sometimes the public, sometimes the private. It depends. Confidentiality, I think, will become more important. The ability to execute privately a transaction on a chain and then to be able to use the public chain to verify that in some way. I think store that. I think we'll see more of that. And I think performance is going to massively improve. That is still our Achilles heel. It is still a problem when we're up against conventional payment systems, say for example. And I think that that is where we're really going to see big improvements in the next year or two. So
1: definitely there's a long way to go, but future is bright.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, this Technology has so much potential and we've barely begun to scratch the surface on what we can do. And I see so many brilliant people in the community who are doing so many interesting things that, you know, this is just going to yield huge benefits. And by the fusion with other R4 technologies, you know, I seem to talk to a startup every week that is doing something with blockchain and artificial intelligence, you know, distributed intelligence or something like this. I just see so much happening here, very much, Brian.
1: Speaking of the people, we have a pretty wide array of audience portfolios on our show. So for those folks who are relatively new to this space, what kind of advice do you have for them in order to get more engaged?
0: Read everything you can and go to the meetups. In particular, go to the meetups. Any town, any city that you live in of any size now, I'm going to bet has some sort of blockchain group and going there and starting to get involved with people, listen to people speak uh, you know being able to tell what is sort of real and what is crazy, just to start going there and start reading, reaching out to people. you know when I first started to get interested in this, I just sent an email to anybody that I written an interesting article on and say, hey, you know, I I read your article and didn't quite understand this. Could you explain this to me a bit more? People always like to talk, you know, that's sort of people will always talk. People are always interested that you find them interesting. And so, an email or a a LinkedIn uh, reach out or whatever it is can produce huge results and benefits in your learning. And I think, you know, the other thing too is to sort of figure out where you fit in this infrastructure. You know, are you a tech person? Are you going to be able to write code? You know, are you interested in Solidity and all of this? If you are interested in Solidity, take the consensus course because we desperately need Solidity programmers. You know, if you're thinking of this from a social engineering point of view, from an economics point of view, you know. How do you fit in there? What's the unique skill that you're bringing into this? And how can your individual understanding of a system or a market or an organization benefit this? One of the the key things that we find a lot of is that blockchain knowledge by itself Is not really that useful. It needs to be combined with some subject matter expert, some SME who can tell us about something, uh, you know, who can really reveal to us uh, how that organization works. Where are the big uh, honeypots of data being stored and why are they stored there? They're never just stored for no reason. There's frequently an economic reason to that. What is ripe for disintermediation versus what is there for really good reason? And just starting to understand that can be, you know, pretty critical. I mean, one of the things that, for instance, an example of that was we were working with a particular organization that wanted to be able to identify a way to ground truth data. They wanted to know, for instance, if there had been an earthquake in a particular province of the country. And the government was saying that the main highways were open. Were they open? And there's a limit you can get from satellite imagery and all of this. They wanted to have ground truth data. And we went through a lot of design exercises thinking about who has good information about what goes on around places. One of the things we finally came up with from talking to somebody who had great knowledge of the taxi industry in India said, you know, taxi drivers, uh, pedicabs, all the rest of it, these guys, Uber, DD, these people always know what's going on. And furthermore, yeah. the they have smartphones. So, maybe there's the benefit for some sort of bounty system where you could ask someone a question and then be able to pay a bounty if they answered that question and provided data that could then be crowdsourced and all of this. But again, you know, it's somebody that's saying, I understand what the situation is. You know, I understand who people, where people are who might be able to add value to this. So, being able to take what is your own area of specialization and then to Add that blockchain special source into it is what really kind of opens up the world for you, I think.
1: Yeah, and I think that's what uh, ConsenSys is doing so well at is just with the uh, Ethereum uh, blockchain to bring real social impact. And that's really what I'm really excited for to see in the next few years. Yeah,
0: I think so too. I think some of the stuff we're doing, you know, with providing documentation for refugees, providing supply chains for uh, folks in... Who, you know, who aren't getting the real benefit of uh, the value they're producing. I think there's a lot of good stuff going on.
1: Tori, this has been a fascinating discussion. I really appreciate your input. And if our audience members would like to get in touch with you, how can they reach you? You can
0: reach me on Twitter at Tori DC, one word. And you know what? I'll even give you my email, victoria.adams at Love to talk to anybody reach out. It's been a great conversation.
1: Absolutely. Thank you so much, Tori, for your you time. Thank you very much. Keep it
0: cryptic, guys. Thank you for listening to A Bit Cryptic Podcast. A Bit Cryptic Podcast is hosted by Alain Leon, Dang Du, and myself, Jeff Peterson. Show notes are by our editor-in-chief, Dang Du. Website is by Sammy Toucan and his team at Pack Surge Media. Remember, nothing we say in this show is meant to be financial advice. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and family. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep it cryptic.